As Steph said this evening, uh, I want to share a message uh, that's close to my heart. Um, I've called it Living from Rest. And um, it's one that I shared a couple of uh, weeks ago on a Sunday morning. But uh, a number of people have said how much it impacted them. And uh, so I wanted to share it again. I know some of you uh, don't come in the morning, come in the evening instead. So I wanted to make sure that, that you'd heard it. Um, and uh, I also just kind of really feel that this is something that God's emphasizing for us at the moment. You know, as a church, there's a lot going on. Uh, we're in, in a season where things are, uh, there's lots already happening. And there's an increasing amount that's happening and going to happen. Uh, it feels like there's expansion happening uh, on every side. Um, for, for one, uh, from September, we're going to be going to two morning meetings. And uh, we're going to be kind of doubling what we're doing on a Sunday morning. One of the amazing things there is just that God is providing people uh, and resources to enable that to happen. I've been speaking to some of the team leaders recently um, who at first were kind of thinking, how are we going to make this happen? And actually, uh, people and volunteers are coming forward uh, to help us with that transition. But one of the things I'm really conscious of is that in a season where things are expanding and where there's more and more opportunities before us, and it seems like people are dreaming bigger and bigger, uh, which is fantastic. Actually, it's so important that we don't lose sight of the fact that all that we do uh, has to come out of a place of identity, has to come out of a place of rest, and not out of a place of striving. Uh, I know for me personally, sometimes when I get busy, uh, it's easy to get into, uh, to kind of lose connection, uh, lose connection with Holy Spirit, lose connection with the people around me. Um, and sometimes it's a very conscious effort to realize, ah, I've lost connection. I need to get reconnected again. Um, and I think sometimes when you're busy and you've got your head down and you're working, that can be a very easy thing to happen. I used to work in the city um, as a solicitor before coming on to staff here and, you know, it was busy. Uh, it was busy. And sometimes you'd go for a you know, day and if you had time to go to the, to the loo, that was uh, a good day. You know, it was, it was a busy, busy uh, experience. And I know some of you it will be like that. But just staying connected and learning how to stay connected in the midst of that uh, is so, so important. And I know some people, it might be easy to think, um, actually, I'll rest when it all stops. You know, when I get to my break you know when, once i once i get that thing done then i'll rest you know you kind of reserve your rest time for for the holiday season um but actually it was it was the backlands Stephen wendy backland were here with us a few weeks ago and they were talking about actually victorious mindsets and developing victorious mindsets and they said it, so many people think you know when that situation changes uh, then everything will be okay uh, when that turns around uh, then, then I'll be able to think and live victoriously. And we're, we're always kind of waiting for that thing to happen. And they said the best time to develop a victorious mindset is actually right now, uh, in the midst of what's going on. Uh, however bleak it might seem, actually this is the time where you need to be developing that muscle. And it's the same, I think, with rest. It's easy to think, oh, I'll, I'll rest when everything stops. But actually, if we're going to learn a lifestyle of rest... We need to be able to learn it in the midst of activity and in the midst of work. So that's one of the kind of key reasons I want to be sharing it, as well as the fact that it's been impacting me recently. And so I want to share that with you. I have to give credit to um, chap Leif Hetland. Um, he's a, an apostolic uh, figure. 
uh, who's doing amazing things around the world. Some of you may have heard of him, but I came across him a couple of months ago. I'd heard about him before. I'd never actually listened to any of his stuff. And I listened to a, a message that he shared on, on rest. And uh, actually, I've adapted the illustration. The illustration I'm going to be using this evening is, is one of his. Um, but I've adapted it. And uh, so I just want to give credit where credit's due. There was a great preacher who once said that he was just a walking quote. Um, so I'm in good company. Uh, this evening. Um, so what I want to do this evening is talk to you about three chairs, uh, which really represent three positions that we can live in and we can be in. And uh, I'm going to be referring to these as chair number one, chair number two, and chair number three. Chair number one, this chair signifies sonship, living as sons and daughters of the king. So chair number one is living as sons and daughters. Chair number two, this is the seat for servants. And chair number three is for estranged sons and daughters. Chair number one, you're saved. Say saved. Saved. Chair number two, you're saved. saved. So in chair number one and chair number two, both you're saved. But your experience is very different. Chair number three, you're lost. Okay, these are the people out there that don't know Jesus yet. They're represented by chair number three. And I want to ask you this evening, which chair are you seated in? Which chair are you seated in? And we're going to be exploring uh, these three different chairs and what comes with them. Jesus told a story that I think illustrates... uh, Two of these chairs really well. And uh, he told the story in Luke 15 of two sons. You'll probably, many of you will be familiar with it. It's often referred to as the story of the prodigal son. It should be the story of the amazing father. But actually there are two sons in that story. Uh, One often gets focused on, but there are actually two. The first son is the youngest son. He's the one who you'll remember, asked his father for his inheritance early. So he goes to his father and he asks him for his inheritance now. Effectively saying to his father, I wish that you were dead. He gets his inheritance. His father is so gracious. He doesn't punish his son. He actually gives him his inheritance ahead of time. And his son goes off and he squanders that inheritance. He goes off. And engages with wild living and and kind of pursuing his dreams, pursuing the things that he wants to do. He's a good representation of somebody who's seated in chair number three. He became estranged from his father. And he began to feel the consequences of that break in the relationship. One of the amazing things is though, as he began to feel those consequences... He began to think to himself, actually, I'd be better off returning to my father's house and being in my father's house. And he decided that he would return home because he said to himself, actually, even being a servant in my father's house would be better than being seated over here. And so he makes his way home and he's hoping 
to be restored as a servant in his father's house. Under the Jewish law, the Jewish custom, he could actually have been stoned. When Jesus was telling that story that his hearers could easily have thought that the consequences of that son's rebellion, essentially, would be that the father could stone his son. So even the idea of his son returning as a servant was shocking. The amazing thing is, though, what we discover is that the son returns home And the father doesn't just restore him to being a servant in his house. He actually fully restores him to the place of sonship. He restores him to the place of living as a son in his father's house. And in the story, Jesus tells how he gives him a robe. He gives him a ring on his finger. He gives him shoes to wear. And he throws a party for him. He kills the family calf. In order to celebrate the fact that this son who was estranged has now returned home. He restores him to a place of intimacy, identity and sonship. It's an incredible story of restoration. Probably what's one of the most tragic things in that story though is that we actually see the reaction of the older brother. The older brother who'd lived in the same house, who'd lived in his father's house for all of his life. What we find is that that older brother can't believe how his dad has reacted when his lost son has returned home. And he gets angry and he gets bitter. And he basically says to his dad, why have you thrown a party for him? Why have you given him everything? Why have you restored him to this place of sonship? Do you not know what he's done? And by the way, why have you never given me anything? I've been here all this time and I've been serving you. It's an incredible tragedy that the older brother was actually living in the father's house. But he was living as a servant. He was in chair number two. He wasn't living as a son. It's a tragedy really when you think about it that it's possible to grow up in church to be brought up a Christian, to have known God for many years, to have served faithfully, to be in the house, but actually not know who the father is. You see, he couldn't believe his father's reaction to the younger brother. He couldn't believe that his father would be so loving, his father would be so forgiving, his father would be so merciful to restore the younger brother. It's amazing when you think about it that he was close to the father in physical terms, but actually in his heart, he was a million miles away. And that really is a story of what it is to be a servant. As I said, you're saved, you're in the father's house, but actually you're not living as a son and a daughter. You see, this is a place, if you were to sum it up in two words, this is a place of identity And a place of intimacy. Knowing that you're loved and valued. And enjoying intimacy with the father. Knowing his heart and sharing his heart. Whereas chair number two. This really is the place of an orphan. Who doesn't know who they are. And doesn't know who the father is. And it's so important that we capture this it's so important that we 
actually understand who we are, understand what God thinks of us. It's important for our sake. And I always say this, it's, it's really, I think fundamentally it's important that you get this for your sake. But it's also important for the sake of the world around you. If you just think for a moment, if you were to go out and ask your friends, ask the people that don't know Jesus yet, those in chair number three, if you were to ask them what God's like, what are they likely to say to you? If you were to ask them, what do you think God's like? What would they say? An interesting question to ask sometime. I bet many of them would describe the kind of characteristics of somebody sitting right here. It occurred to me a few years ago when I was reading the story of the prodigal son, what would have happened to the younger brother if he'd met the older brother on the way home? How many of you ever think that he would have ever actually been restored to his father? How many of you think he would have ever actually made it home? It's a sobering thought It's so important that the person we're representing, that we know God for who he is, so that we can represent him as he truly is. But it's also important for our sake. It's important for your sake, because this is your true identity. Living as a son and daughter in your father's house. Romans 8 tells us that when we believe and we put our trust in Jesus... That we are restored to a place of sonship. That we are adopted. And that we receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We're restored in our connection with the Father. That we've stopped being estranged. And we've now been brought back to a place of intimacy. And knowing who we are and what our Father thinks of us. And this is the place of rest. This is the place of rest. Chair number one, living as a son and daughter. Actually, one of the fruits of that is that we live in a place of rest. Chair number two, this is a place of striving. This is a place where it's down to you to make things happen. It's down to you to make things work. It's down to you to produce. It's down to you to get things right. We strive in chair number two. In chair number one, it's a place of rest. Chair number one is a place of love. It's about knowing that you're loved. Chair number two is characterized by fear. Your experience is one of fear. In chair number one, you know what it is to be anointed. In chair number two, you're just annoying. In chair number one, you're prophetic. In chair number two, you're pathetic. In chair number one, you're fruitful and you produce fruit easily. Chair number two is a place of frustration. In chair number one, you have a big papa. You also have a big brother who looks after you. In chair number two, you've got big problems. And your problems are bigger 
than the father who is looking out for you and who cares for you. They're totally different experiences. Both, in both, you're saved. It's possible to be saved but live as a servant rather than living as a son and as a daughter. And this came home to me afresh recently. I think being honest, I know what it is to live sometimes in chair number two and sometimes in chair number one. And uh, I was having that experience a few couple of months ago. I was just about to go on my first mission trip with uh, the School of Supernatural Life. Uh, I was going to be taking a team uh, down to Southampton. And in the run-up to that trip, uh, I was struggling just with some of the pressures that come with uh, leadership, some of the tensions I was feeling around that, and particularly with this whole issue of doing it out of a place of rest. I was conscious that in my heart, I was aware that I was striving. I was feeling the heat. I was feeling the pressure. I was feeling the need to produce. You know, in this environment, it's not just a case of doing a great job, but you also have to do the supernatural. (laughs) No pressure there. Well, if you're in chair number two, That can feel pressure. You can feel the heat is on. And I was aware that I was just in that place and struggling to get out of it. And that was when I came across uh, Leif Hetland and some of the messages there. But I was just kind of in a place where I got to a place where I just came before God and was just saying to him. Ultimately, I, I, I wrote in my journal and just said, Father, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to live in rest as you want me to. I don't know how to stop striving. And I said to him, would you transform my heart? I need you to do something in my heart to help me get to that place. And I remember writing in my journal, I thought, I really need to write this down. And I just said to God, I can't do it. I can't live in the way that I know you want me to. I can't live out of rest in the way that you want me to. And I remember saying to Emily at the time that that moment felt really powerful and really vulnerable all at the same time because I genuinely was saying to God, I don't know how to do this. I kind of know what I should be doing, but I don't actually know how to do it. I got to that place. I can't do this. And it was amazing It didn't fix itself in an instant. It wasn't like I had an instant kind of revelation. But over the course of the next few days, and in the run-up to me going on the trip, I just felt like something began to unfold inside me. And as I was listening to some of these messages, and the amazing thing was, I got to a place where I said to God, I can't. I can't do it. And it was amazing. It was like getting to that place actually enabled me to receive the very thing that I needed. Because it was like, as I said, I can't do it. It wasn't like I got these words in an instant, but over the course of the next few days, it was almost like the words just began to unfold in me saying, that's the point. That's the whole point. You can't do this, but I can. It's not down to you. It's not down to you. The onus isn't on you. It's on me. And actually, it was in that moment of saying I can't that I began to 
receive like a son and be in a place where I could receive. I just want to look briefly at six different characteristics of living as sons and daughters. And six different kind of keys, if you like, to being and and remaining in chair number one, because I'm sure that's the place that all of us want to be. And the first one is that actually living from a place of rest, living as sons and daughters, actually it starts by knowing that you're loved and approved by God and valued by him. Not for what you do, but for who you are. You start from approval. You're not having to earn it. You're not having to earn anything. You're not having to work from it. You can't lose it. You've got it. And knowing that that's the place that you start from actually releases you from that striving and that fear and that need to produce and to perform. Jesus had this. There's a great account in uh, Luke chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized, and this is before he started his earthly ministry. This is before he did anything. Before he ministered, before he healed the sick, before he did anything. And when he was baptized, he says the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. He started from a place of approval. Before he'd done anything, the father made clear to everybody around that he was pleased and he approved and he loved his son. Jesus knew that and he was able to live out of that place. He was approved before he did anything. And it's so important that we get that as well, that we have that inside us. And I just encourage you, if your experience is more chair number two than chair number one, I'd encourage you to come back to that place and to come to God and to ask him to reveal to you and to show you how much he loves you, to know that you're approved as you are and that you're loved just as you are. You know, your value doesn't come from the fact that you put your trust in Christ. He has always loved and valued you. You're valuable because you're his, because he made you. Jesus died for us even when we were estranged from him. He paid the highest price. The reason you you only pay the highest price for something that you value the most. You're loved and you're valued. And that's your starting point. That's your starting place. We're operating from approval. It's also about intimacy and connection. Being and and staying in chair number one and that place of rest is about being connected and enjoying intimacy with him. Jesus talks about this in John 14 and 15. There's some amazing chapters And in John 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit coming. And he says this, he says that he will send us the Spirit. He says, you will know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus has not left us in chair number two. 
He's given us his spirit that we might be seated and remain in chair number one. That spirit of sonship. It's amazing to me that Jesus said to the disciples who'd been with him, the 12 disciples who'd been with him for three years, he actually said to them, it's better for you that I go. That the spirit might come and live in you. I find that astonishing. If you think about it, what would you take? Jesus living with you for three years in person or the Holy Spirit living inside you? Jesus said, it's better for you that I go. He said, on that day, this was speaking of Pentecost, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Incredible intimacy, incredible unity. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in us. And we're in Jesus. It's this incredible intimacy that he has given to us. And then he goes on in John 15 to tell the parable of the vine and the branches. The story of connection. Being connected with him. And he tells us we're called to remain in him. To remain in his love. And he actually says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, he can do nothing. That was the revelation that I received. Actually, I can't do this apart from being connected with him. He is the vine. He is the one that produces the fruit. He is the one that causes things to grow. He is the one that multiplies things. He's the one that does the supernatural. He's the one that heals the sick. He's the one that saves the lost. He's the one that does it. And actually... What he calls me to do is remain connected to him, to remain in his love, to remain in him. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of connection. It's also a place of receiving. You see, chair number one is about receiving. Chair number two is about achieving. But actually, it's amazing. Receiving sounds so easy. But it's amazing how hard it can be to do sometimes. It's really funny, isn't it, that Jesus and the kingdom, so much of what he teaches on one level is so simple, but on another level can be the hardest thing in the world to do. And that's kind of the place that I got to that just a few months ago where I was saying to God, effectively, you just told me I just need to rest. I just need to receive. But I don't know how to do it. How can something so simple be so hard? A key is just receiving. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul teaches on this. And he's writing to the Galatians and he says to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I would like to learn from you just one thing. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you'd heard? 
Are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, essentially because you work hard and you produce it yourself or because you believe what you heard? You see, receiving and believing, I think, are two sides of the same coin. Paul was saying, did you receive the spirit? Did you does God do miracles among you because you get it all right? Because you work hard to produce it? Or because you've learned how to receive, you've learned how to believe and receive from heaven. We need to stay in a place of receiving. And I believe that actually faith and, and believing is a key part of that. And that was something else that I learned when I was in Southampton. I was there for four nights with a team. And on one of the evenings, a Saturday, so just before our last day, they had a a fundraising evening the church we were with had a fundraising evening for uh, some projects that they were working with in the congo a team was going to be going out and uh, one of the uh, couples that was part of that team they were hosting the evening and their son uh, this year had broken into the southampton first team um, so he was playing in the premiership for southampton and so they had a couple of things as part of the auction uh, they were doing an auction that evening for the fundraising and they had a couple of items of memorabilia from Southampton. Uh, one of them was a signed football and the other one was this, uh, a signed uh, Southampton shirt, signed by all of the first team players. And uh, my brother-in-law is a big Southampton fan. Uh, he grew up there and uh, so I had my eye on this for him. And uh, I actually sent a text round to the family uh, Emily and Emily's dad are here this evening. I sent a text round just saying, do any of you want to kind of chip into this and uh, we can get it for Simon for his birthday or Christmas present? Uh, so I was trying to raise some funds um, to, to try and uh, kind of win this item. And uh, the football went first and the football went for £150. So I was sat there and in my head, uh, I'd had a couple of replies and I was trying to work out how much I was willing to, how far I was willing to go. And I had a hundred pounds in my head. Uh, that's where we, I'd got to. And, uh, so I thought after I'd seen the football go for 150, I thought, oh, I'm in a bit of trouble here. So, uh, when it got to 70, I thought my only chance is shock and awe. Um, so it got to 70 and I immediately was going up in kind of five pound increments. So fairly slow pace. So it's at 70, I quickly put my hand up 100. I thought that's my only chance. And I thought that might shock people into submission. Uh, unfortunately it didn't or fortunately or and unfortunately it didn't. Uh, and a couple of people outbid me, uh, and the shirt ended up going for 115 pounds. And uh, I was actually kicking myself a bit thinking, should I have gone higher? But anyway, after a few minutes of thinking, ah, oh, I should have got that, um, I, I let it go. And at the end of the evening, I was just chatting to a couple of people. And uh, one of the leaders in the church, the guy who'd bought it actually, came up to me. And uh, he just gave it to me. And he said, this is for you. I got this for you. And uh, I was blown away. I was really blown away. It's certainly the most expensive gift from a stranger that I've ever received at somebody I don't know particularly well. I'd obviously been getting to know them, but 
it just touched me and immediately I just knew it was in the context of all that God was showing me about living as a son and living from rest. And uh, I just knew that God was, it was just an example of actually receiving and just being able to receive. You know, it'd be interesting to know where your limit is. You know, what, what would be the most expensive thing you could receive without feeling guilty or like you don't deserve it? I think, you know, we need to get used to the idea of being able to receive and just being blessed. We don't need to earn it. We don't need to deserve it. But just learning to receive. And I actually texted Emily that evening and I was telling, obviously told her what happened and just signed off the text by just saying, I love being a son. You know, I love being a son because I realize this is what happens to sons and daughters. You get given things that you haven't expected, that you haven't had to pay for, that you haven't earned. It's just what God does. Living as sons and daughters. And the most amazing thing is, well, there were two amazing things. One was it gave me an excuse to go and talk to this uh, Southampton player uh, who was there that evening. Uh, I hadn't wanted to go up to him prior to that because, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of figure if I was famous, I probably wouldn't want everybody coming up to me who doesn't even know me. Uh, but having got the shirt, I thought, well, I'm sure he wouldn't mind a photo. So I went and had a photo and got to chat to him about playing in the Premier League and, you know, his best experiences and stuff. And it was just, for me, that made my evening, uh, as well as getting the shirt. And then the other thing is, it's not even for me. Like, this shirt isn't even for me. Uh, I'm going to be giving it to my brother-in-law soon. And, uh, you know, just that where Jesus says, actually, freely you've received, freely give. And again, just an example, actually, as we learn to receive, as God pours things onto us, we get the privilege and the joy of being able to give them away as well. So learning to receive uh, is a key. We also get access to all things. In the story of the prodigal son that I started with at the beginning, the older brother The tragic ending to that story is the older brother is complaining about what the father's done and complaining that he's never thrown him a party, complaining, effectively, you've never given me what you're giving to him. And the father ends by saying, didn't you know everything I have is yours? Everything I have is yours. You see, he was living as a servant. He didn't realize that as a son, he has access He had access to what his father has. And Jesus, it's amazing actually as you begin to read the Gospels through this lens. Just look at Jesus living as a son. Especially John's Gospel is really good for it. But you begin to see statements and you begin to see things that are coming out of this identity. And one of them in John 17, that famous prayer that Jesus prays. He says, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. That's a son statement. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And elsewhere, in fact, it's in John 15 where Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches. Remain in me, remain in my love. In there it says, and you can ask for anything in my name and it will, I will give it to you. And John, it's in 1 John as well. What does that look like? It means you have access, but it's in the context of sons and daughters. It's in the context of rest. You also live anointed. As a son and a daughter, you experience what it is to live with anointing. Jesus at his baptism 
received affirmation from heaven. He also was anointed. Before he did anything, affirmation and anointing. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and remained. And remained. Actually, when I'm living as a son, that's when I experience most the anointing of heaven. And the power of God just flowing through me. It's not about me producing. It's about him flowing through me. It says in John 7 that when we believe and put our trust in him, actually it's like streams of living water that flow within us. We actually connect ourselves with heaven. We connect ourselves with God's supply. And I believe that we're, God is bringing us into a place where actually we get to see what it is to live unlimited Not because we have it in ourselves, but because we've learned how to connect with him and how to connect with heaven. I was, uh, there was a tweet that went out from Bethel TV a couple of weeks ago and it kind of spoke to me in this context and it just went like this. It says, fear measures and limits me to my ability or inability, but love, that place of sonship, of living as a daughter, love connects me to God's ability. Fear measures and limits me to my ability or inability, but love connects me to God's ability. Actually, living as sons and daughters, we get to live unlimited. We get to live with the anointing of heaven and seeing God do what only he can do. We're no longer limited to what we can do. We're actually releasing God to do what only he can do whether that's in the realm of healing or salvation in your workplace, in your family, bringing restoration, bringing peace of mind to those maybe with mental illness and other things. Actually, we can't do that, but heaven and God can. And as a son, I get to release that to the world around me. And we also get to live with joy. Living as sons and daughters is a place of joy. It says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than any of his contemporaries. I believe that love and joy, again, they're intricately linked. You try being in love and not being joyful. You try being loved and not being joyful. Actually, joy flows out of love. It flows out of that place of knowing that you're loved and approved no matter what. And that you've got a father who is taking care of you and who is You've got access to everything that he has. So I just want to ask you, which chair are you living in? Which chair are you experiencing at the moment? I'm guessing many of you in this room, it will be chair number one or chair number two. The great thing is, we've got a part to play in choosing where we sit. And as I said, from my experience, sometimes I find myself in chair number one and sometimes I'm in chair number two. Uh, Emily probably picks up on it before I do, uh, which chair I'm sitting in. And it might be five minutes, it might be five hours, it might be five days. For some of you, it might be five years that you've been in chair number two. But actually, we can begin to make that transition and begin to reconnect with heaven and with love and move to that place of rest, living as sons and daughters. Three quick things. Firstly, I think one of the keys in this is renewing our minds and just lining ourselves up with who God says we are and what he thinks of us. 
actually getting a, the right perspective on who God is and what he thinks of us is so crucial. For so many of us, our, our picture of God is, is shaped by significant relationships we've had or by our life experience rather than by God himself and encountering him. And I'd encourage you, if that's you, get alone with God and ask him. My, my prayer, I went for about 18 months praying the same prayer. God, I want to know who you really are. Not, not what religion has taught me or what my life experience has taught me or what other people have taught me you are. I want to know what you're really like. Show me what you're really like. And also knowing and seeing who he says we are as well. It's also about learning to receive. And it's about remaining in God's love. And remaining in that place of knowing that we're loved and valued no matter what. So just to close, why don't, why don't you just stand and uh, you just connect with heaven. You might want to put your hands out, whatever you want to do. Just, just engage with heaven. And uh, I just want to release over you I, just, I want to release over you just a father's blessing. Uh, because I, this is about knowing that you're loved by your heavenly father. First and foremost, it's about being connected with him and knowing that you're loved as a son and as a daughter. And so I just release over you. I release over you the father's love. And I release over you a deeper revelation of what it is to be a son and a daughter of the most loving person you will ever meet. He is love. He is the source of love. Every good thing that you've experienced, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of taste of how good he is. And I release over you the knowledge of his love. Paul, his prayer for the Ephesians is that they would be rooted and established in this love and that they would have power to grasp it because it's so beyond our ability to comprehend. He, he actually says, he, he prays that they would know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? It's because your spirit catches it. It's because your spirit engages with it. And so I release, I release over you power and revelation to grasp how high and how wide and how deep and how long is this love that God has for you. If the love of God doesn't shock you, if you think you've grasped it, it's not big enough. Okay, it's not big enough. And so I release that over you. Wow. I release rest, I release peace. And I just also release the ability to receive what heaven is, is pouring out upon you. Wow. Wow, I just feel for some of you, God's just breaking in on that thing. The ability to receive. There's just a grace being poured out to enable you to receive. Some of you will disqualify yourself or think if, you know, you might be given a present and your typical response in, inside might be, but I don't deserve this. But am I worth this? And God's just breaking that now. 
Because that isn't a question, that isn't something that sons and daughters ask. And, and actually, he wants to kind of change your ability to be able to just receive. To enjoy receiving. Enjoy receiving because it's a father pouring out his love and his pleasure and his goodness and his, his delights and his blessing into your life. I just want to take the limits off your ability to receive. Okay, one of my prayers at the moment and one of, I think it's going to just be a life journey is God, I've just taken, Emily and I just prayed this a few months ago and just said, God, we just take the limits off your goodness in our life. We take the limits off what, how good you can be to us. <laughs> we just take the limits off. Father, whatever limits we put on and I just, we just, let's just do that now. Just take off the limits of his love and his goodness in your life. Take off the limits You know, it's funny, isn't it, how it's almost like if if someone does something for us that feels too good, we get embarrassed and we kind of feel like we don't, we shouldn't have it or it's not right. And that's just being broken off. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Because we just need to become really good at receiving because he's really good at giving. (laughs) He's really good at giving. So let's become really good at receiving. And there was one other thing. When I was just worshipping this evening, I just saw a picture of a maze. It was one of those hedges, circular maze, and someone was stuck in the middle of it. And I just felt that what I was sharing this evening was, was really a key for you in terms of getting out. The whole thing of living as a son or daughter and living from approval and living from love was just going to lift that maze away. And I asked God what it was, and I felt him say that it was depression that that thing that you were stuck in was depression and it's just grace being released right now for you there's a grace just receive it you don't need to do anything wow there's a grace just being released wow thank you Jesus thank you for your love thank you for your goodness thank you for your kindness He's releasing value over you right now. He's just releasing a value. Wow, you've always struggled to know that you're valuable. Wow, but that's not going to be the case anymore. Thank you, Jesus. And he's just lifting that maze away. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And this is for the world to know as well. (laughs) This is for the world to know. The world needs to know that God loves them and that they are invited to be sons and daughters too. So I just release, wow, greater measures, greater depths of love and the power of God in your life. And I just, I thank you, Jesus, for the ripple effects that are going to go out into our families and into our, our friends and those that we come into contact with. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.